Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Full disclosure, I almost passed out in the first service. <laughs> so if I pause and get a drink of water, um, I'm just not one for crowds looking at me. It's just not my natural place. I don't live in this moment going, yes, bring it. Um, and more than anything else, I just want to make sure that the words that I say don't get in the way of the words that were proclaimed in this passage by, by God through His Holy Spirit in Paul's writing. Um, and as Sean said, uh, my wife Kim and I have been coming to Redemption for a little over three years. We followed our boys here, and with their permission, they said, yeah, we can come. We didn't want to invade their, their space. Uh, Redemption Church is nine different congregations, if you haven't been here before, spread across the valley with one also in Tucson and Flagstaff. And uh, we, we have a conviction that each, each week, we, we really have just a big Bible study. We, we look at the scripture chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because we just have a conviction that that's the way redemption is supposed to go through the Bible. If uh, we're lead pastor and elder led, and if you want to know what that means, you can talk to Sean after, after um, service. He already prayed, but I'm going to pray again. Father, uh, you're so good to us. We read these words. We get this glorious picture of the humility of your son. We get this glorious picture of his love for us. We get this glorious picture of him, even in that, being humble to make sure that you get the glory. Lord, we... We ask that these words would penetrate our soul, that your Holy Spirit would change us with these words. Father, I pray that as we study this text this morning, God, that your words would pour forth from my mouth, Father, that I would not get in the way of what's being preached through your gospel. I thank you for your son and that he died for me and all of us, Father. May he be proclaimed this morning faithfully. In his name I pray. Amen. As I was preparing for this message um, and just thinking through, well, this is how we do it. We get up on stage and we read the words. Part of our liturgy is we read the word of the Lord. And we say, this is the word of the Lord. And then in response, the congregation says, thanks be to God. 
But as I was considering this passage that we're going to look at this morning, this isn't just the textual word of the Lord that we are looking at, but it is the John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. In the John 1 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Word. That's what we're looking at when we look at Philippians 2 5 through 11 is the the Word becoming flesh, dwelling amongst us. And if it wasn't for the incarnate Christ, the words that we use every week in response, thanks be to God, those would be empty words. They would be fruitless words. They would mean nothing to us. But because of what He did on the cross and what we see in this passage of Scripture, it gives us the opportunity to say thanks be to God for what He's done for us. And these verses along with the 9 through 11 make up an amazing passage of Scripture. It's a beautiful summary of the whole Gospel. And reading it and hearing it stirs up something deep within us if we're a Christ follower. We read these words, we long for that day when Jesus is on the throne and all, all of us get to bow before Him. We go, yes, Lord, bring it. And many commentaries consider this section of Scripture to actually be an early church hymn. Some call it the Christ hymn. And whether or not, um, whether or not Paul penned the hymn, there's some debate over that, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the meaning of this passage of Scripture. And, uh, but central to our study this morning is this idea of Christ's humility. Christ humility humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that informs us how we are to live. And that's what's central to what we're studying this, this morning. But to set the stage for that, we need to go back a little bit and look at the last couple of weeks of what we studied. And um, most, as Sean taught us, Paul's style of writing in Philippians, he kind of jumps all over the place. But... Ultimately, everything is pointing to this section of Scripture, verses 5 through 11, the Christ hymn. And um, most of what we went over last week, which leads into the first four verses of what we're going to study this week in, in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, all centered around this statement in, in chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It reminds us, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So last week, we examined what that means. And Sean kind of unpacked, well, if we're living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, what does that mean to us? How do we do that? But our text this week starts out by continuing what it means to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it's, but it's from the standpoint of Christian unity in the body. And really, the first four verses of chapter 2 are a continuation of the section of Scripture that starts in verse 27 of chapter 1. It calls, kind of rolls right into chapter 2, the first four verses. And it, it also seems to be speaking to the same things that may have been coming up in a little bit, he alludes to it in chapter 1 with opposition. But, but with what we see later in chapter 4, 
there's clearly some disunity in the church. There's some disagreements because we see that Paul pleads with Euodia and Sintichi to agree in the Lord. So it seems Paul is addressing disagreements and disunity in the church because it existed. So he's saying this is what we're going to do about this. And as we look at Philippians chapter 2, the first two verses, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul starts out in verse 1 of chapter 2. What he's saying is, there's a reason for your unity. There's a reason that we should have unity as the body of Christ. And, and Paul is not calling into question whether they have encouragement in Christ, whether they've experienced comfort in his love, whether they've had participation in the Spirit with each other. And he's not questioning, do they have encouragement? Have they felt sympathy from each other? He's not calling into question any of that. What Paul is challenging or reminding the the believers in Philippi to do is examine themselves so that they can see that the evidence of that exists. And really, it's kind of a, a, a rhetorical question. He's really saying, have you experienced Christ? Have you experienced that encouragement from him? Have you experienced the comfort of his love? And have you known the presence of his spirit among you? Have you felt the moving of that? And have you felt the affection that you can only have with each other because of Christ? And if you're a follower of Christ, just as we would say this morning, their answer would, of course, been actually yes. But that moves us right into verse 2 then. What he's saying is, well, if since that's the case, complete my joy. And the interesting thing about that first, first statement, complete my joy, is that in the first four verses of chapter 2, one commentary pointed out, that the only imperative command in there is actually this one, to complete Paul's joy. And what does that mean? How do, how do we get about doing that? Well, he says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And it really, it really seems that it, the other way that it would complete Paul's joy is he's their spiritual father. He wants to see evidence of the maturity of Christ in them. He wants to see that they are growing in Christ. And, and it's like, if there's not unity, then that's evidence that we're not growing in Christ. Paul, Paul's challenging them. I want to see this. But as your spiritual father, it would give me great joy to see you maturity, being all that you were called to be in Christ. And it also seems that this Unity and like-mindedness that he's referring to really is a mark of a maturing Christian faith. It's not something that's optional. It also, what's interesting too is that he keeps repeating this part about being of one mind, being of one mind, that you might be of one mind. And even back in verse 27 of chapter 1, he says to be of the same mind. And again in in verse 5, which we'll get to here in in a few minutes, He's saying being like-minded. And what that doesn't mean is that it's not like 
we all agree about everything. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not like you all have to agree with me that Michael Jordan is the best basketball player of all time. I, I mean, it's simply the fact. You don't have to agree with me. But, that is, but that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is it's more than what you believe in your head. But it speaks to having the same attitude and disposition. It's what drives you deep down inside. It's displaying a common pattern of thinking, of feeling, and acting. And it, it, it's really, what is, it, what is that mind? You ask yourself, well, what mind is he talking about? Well, it's going back, and it's joining, verse 5, what we're going to get to in a second, in verse 27 in chapter 1. It's having the mind that the gospel of Christ should be central in all that we do. And that's the overarching supreme thing that we do is proclaim we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. But we do that, why? Because of his humility. The example of his humility that he gave us that we'll get to here in just a second. So, and what's that saying? And, And we say this here at Redemption. We say all of life is all for Jesus. It, does, it means, hey, Tim, when you're at work, that's Tim's time. We compartmentalize. That's not what it's saying. It's saying when Tim, when you're at work, the way you work should be glorifying to God. Whether you're at school, whether you're out to dinner, whatever we do should be glorifying to God. Living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Christ's humility ultimately is what fuels our unity. He gives us the supreme examples of how he continued the ultimate dying to self, which again we'll get to in a few verses. It's just the opposite of James chapter 4, where we read that, um, and this is the body divided. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war among you? What is he saying? What was the author saying there in James? Well, what he's saying is the body is disunited because you guys are interested only in your own interests. You're more concerned about your own passions. You don't have the passion of the gospel. And here, Paul is instructing the Philippians to live with a passion for the gospel. Then we, we transition then to verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look only, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is anti-American. This is anti-human. We, we don't rest in those words of don't look out for yourself. The world around us screams, look out for yourself. And we're going to get into that some detail when we compare Jesus to us in a little bit. But this does not come naturally to us. Our flesh fights against this. And the world operates on self-interest. We're part of the world, but we're not supposed to be, you know, we're in it, but we're not supposed to enjoy that part of it. And, and what does that mean? How do we do this? Well, as a body, 
within the body, we shouldn't be in competition with each other. We don't do things to have our name elevated. We don't want to see our name elevated. We don't do things because it helps me. No, we have this interest in mind, again, that Christ would be glorified. And what about the vain conceit part, the conceit? What's ironic about this is I could look down at, I'm going to pick on Juan Chavez because I keep seeing his great, his smiling face. I could look down at Juan because of his taste in music. <laughs> but, but ultimately, any conceit that I have about a brother or sister is foolishness when we compare ourselves to Christ. Where do we have room for any conceit in our lives against a brother or sister? When all we have to do is look in the mirror and go, oh, there's me and then there's Jesus. And we are so far separated that any room for conceit is null and void. Others have pointed out that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's going about doing your business, always mindful of how can I take care of others. And really, that humility will lead us naturally into verse 4. As we're taking on the humility of Christ, it'll lead us into verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We'll naturally take care of ourselves. I mean, the verse even points that out. But while we are doing so, let's look out for the interests of others. If you're at the store, I'm trying to think of some examples. You're at the store and you're mindful of a brother or sister that's sick at home. Buy them some groceries. Just, it's little acts of kindness, things like that, that bring, bring unity and show love in the body. It's also being self-aware. It's realizing that, you know what? The decision that I just made impacted somebody else. It's thinking through things and going, well, how, how is what I'm doing affecting the rest of the body instead of just concerned about what I'm doing? In his, uh, and these interests should all flow out of our relationship with Christ. If I have a tight relationship with him, I'm going to be interested in what he's interested in. That's really what it comes down to. But how do we do that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, his number one way, he said, that we could eradicate selfish ambition in Christian communities was to hold their tongues, refusing to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother or sister. He's basically, it starts with our attitude. If we look, if our first thought when we see somebody unlike us in the body is what's wrong with them, we've already missed the mark. Instead of saying, wow, it's a Christian brother or sister I love that Jesus brought the whole world, all cultures together, all races. And how do I develop this mindset? Well, let's look at the example of Paul. He gets his humility by meditating and focusing on Jesus and points us to do the same when we transition into verse 5 in a moment. The interesting thing is Jesus even said in John 35, by this all people will know you are my disciples 
by your love for one another. There's not going to be any love where self-interest is displayed. In love, you can't see a feeling. Love is when you see acts of humility putting other people before yourself. When the outside world sees us taking care of each other the way we're supposed to, they're going to go, I want to be a part of that. I don't understand that love. I don't understand a love that isn't all concerned about myself. And in, in a lot of ways, in the world that we live in today, I've never seen so much um, disunity in the church across our country. I've been around 52 years. I've been in church all my life. And it just seems like we have forgotten that we are all about the cause of Christ and we're more wrapped up in our personal causes than the cause of the gospel being spread. And all this in verses 1 through 4 has been pointing us forward to the humility and character of Jesus that we see in verse 5 and continuing. And we have um, the ESV, or ESV would read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. A couple of other translations, ENASB, put it this way. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In the NIV, put it this way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Um, Theologically, they're all saying the same thing. But I think the NASB, the NIV, some of the other translations um, more clearly show us that Humility is something that we must participate in developing. If we're, if we're in Christ, it doesn't, it doesn't automatically just make us fully humble. It's something that we have to continue to develop by dying to self time after time. We can learn about humility. We can learn about it and not get there, though. It takes practice. Dying to self does not come naturally. Our flesh is going to fight against that all the time. But the reality, the truth of the matter is that as Jesus has impacted you, it will lead to humility. It's not typical apart from Christ. But the more time that we spend at his feet, we start to understand his humility. The humility he took on when he went to the cross. And that's really... Um, again, using Paul as the example to develop that in us, we need to meditate and think on Christ. The, the, uh, the bracelet, what would Jesus do? Yeah, it's over, it's over um, merchandised and everything, but there is a, re- a reality to that when we're at his feet. He tells us what to do. And that mindset of the humility of Christ is laid out for us in the next three verses. Let's look at this one moment. Excuse me. Verses 6 through 8. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
This passage says so much. The reality is, I'm just going to start with Jesus, in humility and love, says to humanity, all right, I'm going to show you what this was really supposed to be like from the beginning. And what's, what's really cool about this passage, I kind of get geeked out on, on words and stuff in Scripture, but what's really cool about this passage when you look at it is that this passage of Philippians is the answer, even by the word, to the problem that was presented to us in Genesis chapter 3. And we, because if we look at Genesis 3, the, in verses 4 and 5 it says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. From the very beginning, all the way back to Genesis 3, man has been striving to be God of his own life. We have been striving to put ourselves on the throne. Adam, Eve, they were grasping equality with God, but Jesus did just the opposite. He said he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And here's the reality of this. The world and culture that we live in tells us day after day after day that put yourself on the throne. Day after day after day, not only only does it try to deny the existence of God, it encourages us to be God of our own lives. If you drive down the freeway looking at billboards, or you can listen to radio and you hear the advertisements, or even on TV, what's popular right now? You hear, you do you. 15 to 20 years ago, the mantra that I grew up with when I was first in business, the mantra going around was, it's all about me, baby. Whether, and all the way back to the garden, Satan's appeal has been consistent. You can be your own God. It was for no reason that Paul wrote in Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All of the world's systems, advertising, marketing, everything, they appeal to us to put ourselves on the throne. Day after day, hour after hour, the world is screaming at us, don't put Jesus on the throne. Don't put God on the throne. Put yourself on the throne. And we have to ask ourselves, Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But we have to ask ourselves, what are we grasping for that puts us on the throne instead of Christ? Just rest in that a minute. What are you grasping for? What am I grasping for that isn't Jesus on the throne? So instead of grasping at equality with God, though, as we move on, we see that Jesus emptied himself. And in emptying himself, Jesus did not give up his deity, but he surrendered his rights and his will to that of his Father. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed, 
He goes, Lord, take this cup from me as he's sweating drops of blood. And yet he goes, but not my will, but thy will be done, Father. We see that in this scripture. And in, uh, in doing so, in emptying self, Jesus also shows us what we were created for. We were created to serve God in this passage. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He showed us that we were created to serve God, to live for his glory, which ultimately brings us the greater joy and happiness. Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. We were made to serve and live for God's glory, not our own. We were made to serve God and others. This means paradoxically that if we try to put our own happiness ahead of obedience to God, we violate our own nature and become ultimately miserable. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people that have everything and they don't have joy and happiness. And what this is saying is, until we understand that we were created to serve the living God, and it's only in that service that we find our joy, there, there's not going to be peace in your life. And also being born in the likeness of men, Jesus truly lived as a man. People saw him as human. If not for scripture, if not for Jesus' work, and his own declaration of who he was, would anybody have believed he was God? He did not walk around with a billboard, I am God. He walked around in ultimate humility, being a carpenter and a carpenter's son. And yet, even in that, Jesus often left people asking themselves, what kind of man is this? Because he lived the perfect human life and the beauty that that brings with us. And we move on, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humility of becoming human, and then humbling himself to allow the created to, cre- to crucify the creator is astounding when you think about it. He humbled himself to the point that those who exist by the word of his mouth, he allowed to hang him on the cross. Even death on a cross, the worst type of death possible in Jewish culture. Um, It's it's hard to even think of a, a modern day example for that. But there could be nothing worse in Jewish culture than dying on a cross. The other thing that we have to notice here is that obedience matters if we are to be like Christ. Christ was obedient to the point of death. Obedient to the point of death. What, will be, what point will we be obedient to? And the other thing that we notice in that obedience is that obedience is, answers to, is the answer to God's question of, do you trust me? Going all the way back to the garden again. Really, God didn't lay down very many parameters. All they had to do was not eat from that tree. And in that, there was an implication of God saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me that what I want for you is better than what you want for yourself? And sadly, they chose wrong. And in preparing for this sermon, I went through, uh, and I was spent a lot of time there. I almost had too much time to prepare because I was stressing out over this. 
But in, in reading the scripture and meditating on it deeply, there were a couple of moments where Jesus just broke me because he, I realized I haven't been obedient in this. I haven't been obedient in that. And it wrecked me. And in that moment, though, I could feel Christ telling me, but it's okay, I'm still working on you. And that's, that's the beauty of the cross and Him living in us, is that transformational power. And finally, Jesus trusted God even to the point of death, knowing that God's will and purpose is perfect. It wasn't going to be comfortable, but he knew God's will was what was best. If we want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, if we want to have the mind of Christ that puts others before ourselves, we need to take on Christ's humility and put aside our foolish pride. John Stott, in a paper titled Pride, Humility, and God, puts it this way. In fact, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of Christian discipleship, Pride is our greatest enemy, and humility our greatest friend. This is so in justification, sanctification, and ministry. We cannot forget that when we're looking at Christ's humility, that we have to put aside our pride if we're ever going to be like Jesus. And we also can't forget when we're looking at Christ's humility, the tight bond between love and humility. This passage is showing us what God is really like, what Jesus is really like. It wasn't that Jesus came to earth and acted a certain way for a period of time. No, humility and love were the very essence of Christ. It's who he is still today. He didn't hang it on the shelf. We have to realize that as we become more like him, acts of of humility and love, we we can't separate. We look at this passage and we feel the weight of sin, yet Jesus did what we could not willingly, lovingly. We have to realize that, and as John MacArthur said, Christ's love and his humility are inseparable. He could not have been so consumed with the passion for serving others if he had been primarily concerned with himself. And then we move to verses 9 through 11 where Christ is exalted and God is glorified in the process. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You read those verses, and if you're a believer, you go, yes, Bring it. Yes, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We look at this passage and we see all the ills in the world around us. We even see our own sinfulness and we want to get rid of that. Come back, Jesus. Come back. Restore your creation to the way it was supposed to be. And we want that. We want that. I have to wrap up here in a few minutes, so I'm going to have to skip the page. But um, We want that. And we recognize, though, that it was because of Christ's humility that God gave him the name that was above every name. And what is that name? Well, it's most likely his personal name of Lord, 
Yahweh because there's an allusion to Isaiah 45:23. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Um, and we see in the end that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This puts us in the place of already not yet. We know that Jesus is on the throne, but he has not yet come to restore. We can't wait for that day. We recognize that all will bow before him. Some of us will confess that Jesus is Lord, and when we do, we will do it with great joy. And we will do it relieved and happy and and just so thankful for what he's done. But there's going to be others that are bowing before Christ and when they confess him as Lord, it's going to be with great anguish and great despair because of their separation. And, and, uh, and finally, with that thought, even after being highly exalted, though, we see that Jesus is still humble by giving the glory to his Father. Jesus did not claim the glory for himself. No, he passed it on to his Father. Paul wrote similarly in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This passage ends even with Jesus' perfect humility. I'm going to pray in just a moment. But before I do, I want us to ponder some thoughts from this passage. Some of us need to go back to the first four verses and we repent and learn from Jesus' humble example of how we need to put the needs of others before ourselves. Some of you are like me. You grew up in church or you've been a Christian a long time. And we almost get inoculated from the goodness of the gospel, being around it all the time. We need to afresh behold the glory of the gospel and what Christ has done. And not just rest in that, but live in that. Some of us need to take heart this morning. We're weighed down by sickness. We're weighed down by death. We're weighed down by all the evil that's in the world, the violence, the violence against the unborn, the violence against believers across this world. And we need to rest in the fact that Christ is on the throne and he is coming and he will make all things new. That he will bring justice with him. We need to rest in that. And maybe, just maybe, some of you are sitting here and you realize that when you confess Christ is Lord, it's going to be in great anguish. And I'm not trying to talk you into accepting Christ this morning, but if God is speaking to you, listen. Anything I could talk you into, somebody else could talk you out of. But if the Spirit of God is talking to your heart this morning and saying, no, you have never put me on the throne, listen. Listen to Him. Respond to that. Let's pray. Father, God, I pray that your word has penetrated our hearts this morning. 
I pray that because of your words, Father, that we would see that only through being humble like you can we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Father, help us to put you on the throne in all things. Help us to live a joyful, thankful life for what you did on the cross. God, I thank you for saving us. I thank you for a body of believers that we get to come together and worship with and study with. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.